Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. We're continuing our series in the life of Abraham, which spans about 14 chapters in the middle of Genesis. It's called The Life of Abraham, Walking by Faith in the Promises of God. In a way, the title of this series is a little misleading because these chapters in the book of Genesis aren't really about Abraham at all. They're really about God. God and his precious and very great promises to Abraham. The only reason why we're focusing on Abraham is that his life provides the theater in which God's promises break into the world. I learned one of the most important lessons about God's promises earlier this week through none other than a Peanuts cartoon, the theology of Charlie Brown. It was quoted in Jared Mellinger's new book, A Bright Tomorrow, subtitled How to Face the Future Without Fear. Jared is a sovereign grace pastor in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania, um, and perhaps the most gifted preacher in our family of churches, and he's written this book. It's a wonderful book. And uh, in that book, he introduces a chapter about God's promises with this exchange between Lucy and her younger brother, Linus. The two of them are looking out the window, watching it rain, as Lucy asks, boy, look at it rain. What if it, what if it floods the whole world? Then Linus, in his wisdom, says, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. Lucy You've taken a great load off my mind. Linus, sound theology has a way of doing that. Sound theology, rooted in the faithful promises of God, has a way of taking great great loads off of our minds. God's promises comfort us in, in our anxieties. They strengthen us in our weaknesses. They embolden us in our fears. As Jared so helpfully puts it in his book, he writes, promises reveal not what we must do, Not what God will attempt to do, but what God has bound himself to do for us. That's a wonderful truth. That God would bind himself to do something for us. Or as John Calvin put it many centuries ago, we ought to be armed with God's promises so that we may, with courageous hearts, follow wherever he may call us. That's what the story of Abraham really is all about. It's about a weak man who was made strong by the promises of God. It's a man who was plagued by doubts and fears who became a man who walked by faith with his God, not because of his faithfulness to God, but because of God's faithfulness to him. And nowhere is that more apparent than in our text today. Genesis 15 has been called the very heart of the Abraham story because it's here that God's promises to Abraham are most prominent. We've already seen God make a number of promises to Abraham uh, beginning in chapter 12 and extending into chapter 14. But here in chapter 15, God not only expands upon and reaffirms those promises, but he seals them with a covenant, a sacred promise in which God binds himself by an oath to do what he has promised to do. So let's read our text today. Genesis chapter 15, we'll read it in its entirety. Um, This is the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, 
O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The title of this message is the power of God's promises. The power of God's promises. My aim today is to show you that God's promises empower us to live without fear. God's promises empower us to live without fear. We're gonna have three points today. First, believing God's promises. Second, awaiting God's promises. And third, guaranteeing God's promises. Believing, awaiting, guaranteeing. Bag God's promises. I love when it works out that way. First, believing God's promises. Our text today begins in verse one with after these things. This is a phrase that clearly connects the events of chapter 14 to what is about to follow in chapter 15. As we saw in our last message two weeks ago, chapter 14 was about Abram's victory over the four Western warlords led by King Chedorlaomer of Elam. Now these bloodthirsty kings had been on a rampage They just uh, defeated six nations and then an alliance of five eastern kings that were rebelling against him and his rule. And that five eastern kings, that alliance included Abram's nephew, Lot. When Abram heard of this, he didn't hesitate to act. He led his small army of 318 trained men along with his allies that he had made in the land of Canaan. And with their help, Abram routed the western kings in a surprise attack by night and rescued his nephew Lot. It's in this context that verse 1 
says that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision where God says to him, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now this seems a little puzzling at first because why would Abram be afraid of something when he had just accomplished a massive military victory? They might be afraid of him, but he wouldn't have been afraid of them. God was with him, standing by his side, and if that was the case, then no man could stand against him. And yet the Lord finds it fitting to bring a word of comfort to Abram, a gentle word of reassurance that he didn't need to be afraid, that God was there as his shield and that he would reward him with very great things. But why would he do that? Well, it's because God could look into Abram's heart and see beyond all that faith in God's promises and the confidence that came from the military victories, under all of that, God saw that Abram was still afraid. And what was he afraid of? Verses two and three reveal what he was afraid of. God had just promised Abram that his reward would be very great, and yet in verse two, Abram replies, what will you give me? What reward could you give me that would satisfy my deepest longings. To him, it didn't matter if God gave him wealth. It didn't matter if God gave him riches or power or even more military victories. None of that mattered if he and his wife continued childless. That's what he says. What will you give me for I continue childless? If he suddenly died at that moment, his own son wouldn't inherit any of the blessings that God had poured out on him. A man named Eliezer of Damascus would. Eliezer is likely Abram's most trusted lieutenant, his right-hand man. Um, he may have been a trusted, perhaps even beloved servant, but he wasn't a son. He wasn't one of Abram's own children. He was a servant. And so Abram laments in verse three, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. That's what Abram was afraid of. He didn't doubt that God would bless him with riches or bless those who blessed him and curse those who dishonored him. He didn't doubt that God would be his shield and protect him and reward him mightily. He'd already seen God do all of that. Even when it seemed like the situation was impossible. But through it all, he still had no child, no baby to hold in his own arms to call his own. And that was enough to make him very afraid, afraid of the future, afraid for his wife, afraid that all that he had accomplished in life would be meaningless because he couldn't pass it all down to his own child. Abram is struggling in this moment. After this brief season of walking by faith that we saw in Genesis 13 and 14, he's back to being the Abram of chapter 12. Afraid rather than at peace. Doubting rather than trusting. But the amazing thing about all this is that God doesn't rebuke him for it. He doesn't discipline him, judge him, or abandon him. Instead, he shows grace as he comforts him with yet another word of promise. God assures Abram in verse four, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. In verse five, the Lord then shows him this intimate act of kindness, this, this uh, expression of his friendship as he takes him outside and has him look up at the sky to see what one commentator calls a visible word of the promise, a picture of what God had promised to do for Abram. He says, look toward heaven 
and number the stars if you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Now that brings us to verse six. Comforted by God's words of promise, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now it's not an exaggeration to say that this is one of the most important verses, not only in the Old Testament, but in the entirety of the Bible. It has profound theological implications, verse six, but it also has pastoral insights for us. So I'm gonna address this on those two levels, on the theological level and then on the pastoral level. First, the theological. Now one way of reading verse six, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness, would be to interpret it as saying that God considered Abram to be righteous because he had faith. His faith made him righteous. His trust in God's promise had moral worth so that it was through Abram's faith that he met God's moral standards. If we read it like this, then verse six would be, um, would, would be teaching that we are justified by our works. To be justified is to be declared righteous for God to say, you are righteous, you have met my moral standards and I accept you into my kingdom. To read verse six like this, his faith meant that he was righteous, means that Abram was justified by his works. He did enough to merit God's favor. That's one way of reading verse six, but if we look a little closer, we'll see that that's not what the verse says. It doesn't say, and he believed the Lord, and his belief, or his faith, made him righteous. That's not what it says. It says, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's the key phrase here counted it to him, or other translations put it, credited it to him. What does that mean? Well, to credit something is to take one thing and give it value as another thing. It's to take one thing and to give it value as another thing. When I buy something from the store, I have an object in my hands. It's a microwave or a vacuum or whatever. I mean, you you just buy something, a TV, whatever, and then you return it. But their policy is that they don't just take returns, they'll issue a store credit. And it's usually in the form of money or you know, a, a certain amount of value that you can use to redeem something else in the store. The money isn't the same thing as the item that you bought, but rather stands in the place of that item. And the same is true here. When verse six says that Abram's belief in God was counted to him as righteousness, it's not saying that Abram's faith was righteousness any more than we say that the items that we buy in return are money. Instead, it's saying that Abram's faith stood in the place of righteousness. He didn't have righteousness, he had faith. But God in his grace counted that faith as righteousness. Now this understanding of verse six would eventually pave the way for the New Testament's teaching on justification by faith. That people are declared righteous by God only through faith and not by their works. For example, the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, as he references this verse in Genesis chapter 15, he, he explains that justification by faith wasn't some novel teaching that came out of his mind. He wasn't departing from the Old Testament by teaching justification by faith. God's people, he argues, had always been justified by faith, not by works. And that was true of Abraham himself. Abraham wasn't called righteous because he was actually righteous. He was righteous because God, in his infinite mercy, chose to count his faith as righteousness. The wonderful 
thing about that is that it meant that God's relationship with Abraham wouldn't rest on Abraham's ability to obey God's commands or even to believe God's promises. It would rest on God and God alone. That's what verse six means on a theological level. God has always justified his people, not through their obedience or even through their faith, but through their response to his promises. The only difference between the Old Testament, what's happening in Abram's life, and what's happening in the New Testament era, what's happening in all of our lives, is the scope of the promise that God's people are meant to respond to. For Abraham, it was God's promise that he would bless him with the land of Canaan and make him a great nation. For us, it is God's promise to give us a heavenly land that will never be taken from us, a better country that has foundations that will never be shaken. And there we will be part of a new nation of God's new people, a new community of people from every tribe, language, people, and tongue who are equally saved by God's grace through faith that is credited to us as righteousness. That's what it means on a theological level. But how does this verse speak to us on a pastoral level? How does it speak to what we are going through now? Well, I don't think it's always safe to say there's a dichotomy between the theological and the pastoral. You know, hearing those rich gospel truths that I've just gone through should pastor you, especially when you feel condemned by your sin. When you feel that you don't deserve God's grace or God's love, well, that's a given. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't possess righteousness that God would call us righteous or give us his favor. The only thing that, that God calls us to is to believe to believe his promise, that Christ has died for our sins, that Christ has forgiven us of our sins by paying the penalty that we owe, so that if we trust in that promise, he will credit us the righteousness of Christ. That is deeply pastoral. It's not just theological. But this verse, it says several other more specific things to us as well. It reminds us that even the strongest believers like Abram, and we saw that he is a man of faith, the amazing things that he did in chapters 13 and 14, I would not have been able to do those things. He had a faith that, that I do not possess and most of us do not possess. This is a man of faith. But here he is doubting God once again. This reminds us that even the strongest believers can have doubts. The presence of doubt doesn't mean the absence of faith. It also reminds us that when we doubt when we respond to God's word with question marks or with hesitation to believe. God doesn't lash out in anger. He doesn't fume with disappointment. He patiently and gently leads us back to himself to trust him. But most importantly, what this verse reminds us, what it teaches us, is that the only way for us to move from doubt to faith is to listen once again to God's word. You see that? In his moment of doubting, God didn't help Abram by giving him a sign. He didn't do a miracle to show him that he was good for his word. He helped him by speaking the word of his promise to him once again. God promised Abram in chapter 12 that he would give him offspring. And here in chapter 15, Abram doubts that promise. So what does God do? He gives him the promise yet again. Your own son shall be your heir. Your offspring shall be like the stars in the sky. It was this repetition, this renewal of God's promise that helped Abram to believe. And that's what we need in our moments of doubt as well. 
We need more of God's word, not less. That seems counterintuitive because you're doubting God's word. Why would you look back into God's word to receive some reassurance that God's word is true? We want something new when we doubt. We may excuse ourselves and say, well, I tried that. I tried the scriptures. I tried reading my, 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 my Bible every day in my daily devotions, but I'm still doubting. I need something else, something fresh. My friends, we don't need something fresh. We need something ancient. We need the ancient truths of God's word. If anything needs refreshing, it's our sinful hearts, not God's word. And so when we lose sight of the scriptures, when we doubt God's promises to care for us, to forgive us, to provide for us, to love us, to deliver us, we need to look at those promises in God's word again. And when we lose sight of them, when we doubt them, we look at the promises again. And if we do, it's only a matter of time before God speaks his word into our souls with fresh, life-giving power, turning our doubts to faith. That's the first point, believing God's promises. At this point, you may be thinking, well, why, why is it so hard to believe? Why does it take so long for God to answer Why does it seem like he's not hearing my prayers or if he's hearing them, he doesn't seem to care? Well, those are good questions without easy answers. But I believe that the next part of our text will provide at least some answers and some comfort. And that leads to our second point, awaiting God's promises. Having comforted Abram with the promise of a son, the Lord now reassures Abram regarding the promise of land. In verse 7, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now once again, just like he did with the promise of his son, Abram is looking for confirmation. He's heard God's promise, he believes God's promise, but he wants to be absolutely sure that he's going to experience God's promise. And so he asks for a sign. In verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now this request for a sign initiates this mysterious ceremony in verses 9 to 11. The Lord tells Abram to bring him a heifer, which is a young cow, a female goat, and a ram, all three years old, as well as a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Abram does all those things. He cuts all the animals in half except the birds, and he lays those halves on the ground opposite to one another. He then spends the rest of the day doing the exciting work of chasing birds of prey away from trying to eat the carcasses of these sacrifices. There's a lot of debate about what this ceremony means and what it symbolizes, you know, I read several commentators say, well, the animals, uh, the halves, they represent Israel. Because here we have um, all the different animals that could have been used in Israel's sacrificial system. You know, the cows, the goats, the birds, etc. Um, and, uh, and so they represent Israel. And here Abraham is protecting um, his descendants through his faith in God's promise. I mean, that's very interesting. I don't see that in the text. Um, and we could debate about what it means. We're not going to go there. All we're going to do is note that God commands, Abram obeys, and then Abram waits for the Lord to make the next move. And that next move comes near sunset. Verse 12 says that as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. In the Old Testament, God often chose to manifest his presence in two ways, in darkness and in fire. We see that later on in the Old Testament when God appears to Moses in the burning bush. 
when God leads Israel out of Egypt with a pillar of fire by night. And then when God appears to Moses, um, most climactically at Sinai in smoke and flame. In every case, the people's response is the same, dread and fear. The appearance of God put the fear of God in their hearts so that they trembled at his word. That's no different here. This great darkness is called dreadful because Abram is afraid. He's afraid of God as he manifests his presence. We would do well to grow a little bit more in our fear of the Lord. This sense of holy reverence at who he is in his majesty and power. Out of this darkness, the Lord speaks. Not a word of comfort this time, but a word of prophecy. He tells Abram that his offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. For 400 years, they would live as slaves in a foreign land. And the promise that God would give them a land of their own would not be fulfilled. God is talking about Egypt. He's talking about the time when uh, Joseph would lead his family into Egypt in the time of famine where they would stay and multiply over a span of 400 years. God is telling Abram that that's going to happen. He's giving him this prediction that his descendants would live in a foreign land that would not be their own. After those 400 years, God tells Abram that he would bring judgment on the nation and bring them back to the promised land with great possessions. As for Abram, he shall go to his fathers in peace. He shall be buried in a good old age. You see what God is telling Abram here? He's telling Abram that he would never see God's promise of land fulfilled because it wouldn't be fulfilled in his lifetime. Instead, he would die and be buried in a land that wasn't his own, surrounded by people that weren't his own. That would happen later in chapter 23 when Abram has to purchase land from the Hittites to bury his wife Sarai when she dies, and then he would later be buried in that same cave in chapter 25. God is telling Abram that centuries would have to pass before God's promise given to him in chapter 15 and before that to uh, give him the land of Canaan. But why, why, why did that have to be the case? Why did it have to take so long? Why would God delay? Abram's already in the promised land. And he's already doing pretty well. He's winning these massive victories against the world powers at the time. He's walking through the land. He's building altars. Why couldn't God just give it to him now? Well, here's the key part. Verse 16. God tells him that the reason why he had to wait was because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, this is very significant. The Amorites were one of the people groups living in Canaan, in the promised land, and they could be seen, I, I think, accurately to represent all the people living in Canaan who were not part of Abram's household. So God is saying here that Abram couldn't take the land of Canaan from them because they didn't deserve that. Not yet. Their sins weren't dark enough. Their deeds weren't wicked enough for the Lord to give his chosen people the green light to begin their military conquest. That wouldn't happen until after Isaac, after Jacob, after Joseph, after entry into Egypt, after 400 years in Egypt, after the Exodus, after Mount Sinai, after 40 years in the wilderness. All that time needed to pass before Abraham's descendants would be sent by God back into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua to defeat the Canaanites 
once and for all, when their iniquities were complete. Now this tells us something very important about God. It tells us that, that when he sent his people back into Canaan to destroy the nations, an act in biblical history that many people have moral qualms about, God didn't do that as an arbitrary act of violence. God did it as a measured act of justice. It was so carefully and deliberately planned out by God that he didn't send his chosen people to uh, accomplish this conquest until centuries had passed, even though those centuries would result in many seasons and times of hardship for his beloved people. As Derek Kidner puts it, Joshua's invasion was an act of justice, not aggression. Until it was right to invade, God's people must wait, even if it costs them centuries of hardship. And that is why Abram's, Abram would never see God's promises fulfilled in his lifetime. And that's why generations of his offspring wouldn't see it fulfilled either. God was waiting until the Canaanites were so corrupted and twisted by their sin that they deserve for the land to be taken from them and given to Israel instead. God will always accomplish his plans and fulfill his promises, but it has to be when the time is right. And until the time is right, God's people must wait. So let me ask you this. Are you waiting for God to move in your life? Are you starting perhaps to grow frustrated with the waiting? Are you beginning to think that God doesn't hear you Or perhaps that God doesn't care for you because there's so little change in your life. And let me tell you this, God is at work. God is at work. He's not just sitting on his hands or twiddling his thumbs, pretending that he's not hearing you. God is at work to accomplish his plans. He's at work to fulfill his promises. He's at work in ways that you know nothing about, waiting for the right time to act. That could be a few years down the road. It could be a few centuries down the road as we see in the story of Abraham. We don't know. But what we do know is that God is faithful to keep his promises when the time is right every single time. It may be because he's doing a work in you. But it may also be because he's doing a work in other people who are involved in the plans that he is unfolding in your life. Whatever it is, we know that God's timing is always perfect. And until it's perfect, we must wait. And so my friends, let us put our trust in God. If there seems to be a long delay between your desperate cries to God for him to act, let us believe that there is a reason for the delay, a good reason. We may not know the reason, we may not see it for ourselves, but it is there. But once the reason for the delay has passed, I can assure you based on the testimony of Holy Scripture that God will act. He will keep his promises to his people. Promises to deliver us from evil. Promises to give his people justice. Promises to provide for us in our need. Promises to comfort us in our mourning. Promises to satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. Promises to give us a joy that will never end. And that is because we know that God loves us. And we know that God loves us because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And if he did that, how will he not also graciously give us all things that he has promised? 
This leads us to the last part of our text and our final point, guaranteeing God's promises. Now these last five verses return to the religious ceremony that Abram had spent the day preparing and protecting. They tell us that when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land. And then he goes on to describe the scope of that land. Well, what's happening here? Well, it's clear that the smoking fire and the flaming torch symbolize God's presence. But why does God pass through the two animal halves? Well, ancient history tells us that there were times when two parties would enter into a solemn promise called a covenant, which was a promise that was sealed with an oath. It was the most sacred of promises that would result in in more severe consequences than usual if the terms of the covenant were broken. Now, one of the ways a covenant could be inaugurated was with, a simi- uh, with, a, was with a ceremony similar to the one we see here in Genesis 15. The two parties would sacrifice a number of animals, cut them in half, and pass between them as a symbolic gesture. And what they were symbolizing was that if, if they failed to keep their terms of the covenant, they were calling down curses upon themselves. They were saying, if, if I fail to do what I have promised to do in this covenant, then may what happened to these animals happen to me as well. There's some biblical precedents for this. For example, in, in uh, the prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 34, God makes reference to a covenant between him and the men of Judah that involved a ceremony that sounds similar to this one in Genesis 15. When the men of Judah broke that covenant, the Lord says uh, to, uh, through Jeremiah to his people, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. Okay, that's what's happening here. Abram's questioning how God would fulfill his promise to give him land. And to reassure Abram, God not only repeats the promise, but seals it with this covenant, this oath, this solemn promise that he would do what he had promised to do no matter what the cost. Now, the difference between this covenant, and here's the key point, okay? Listen up. The difference between this covenant and the covenants that were very similar in history is that here, only one party passes through the animal halves. God, and God alone, passes through that walkway of death while Abram just stands there and observes. In other words, God is taking full responsibility for the fulfillment of this covenant. Abram's success or failure in honoring the terms of this covenant arrangement were irrelevant to its fulfillment. God would be the one who would uphold his covenant with Abram no matter how well or how poorly Abram performed. And that is exactly what God would do, not just for Abram, but for Abram's offspring those who have responded to God's promise of forgiveness of sins through Christ by faith. In Jesus Christ, God would take responsibility for our failure to uphold the terms of his covenant. And in Christ, he would suffer the consequences himself. We are the ones who deserve death. But Jesus Christ would take that death upon himself on the cross, suffering in our place for our sins. And in this way, he would prove that the fulfillment of the covenant never depended on us. It only depended on him. He would initiate it, he would inaugurate it, he would suffer for it, and he would fulfill it through his life, death, and resurrection. 
And now all who call upon the name of the Lord, who trust in Christ as their Savior and Lord, are welcomed into a new covenant that doesn't depend on us, but only on God to fulfill and uphold. A new covenant sealed by the blood of Christ the Son, an everlasting promise that we will be his people and he will be our God forever. This is the power of God's promises. They empower us to live without fear. The fear of judgment, the fear of death, the fear of loneliness, the fear of meaninglessness, all of that fear melts away from the Christian's life because of the precious and very great promises of God. Now, I'm gonna conclude by saying this. I think many of us would have to admit that living by the promises of God in terms of a day-to-day walking with God isn't something that we've been able to incorporate in the ways that we live out our faith, in the ways that we trust God. This sermon really is kind of like the master's class after the undergraduate, but we're still in the undergraduate. We still need to learn what the promises of God are. We still need to know how to use them before we can graduate and say, well, I believe them, I'm gonna wait for them, and I'm gonna trust that God will fulfill them. And so, in some ways, we need to back away a step and say, well, how do we grow in our understanding and practice of God's promises to his people? Well, let me suggest three practical ways very briefly to start incorporating more of God's promises into your daily life. First, I encourage you to start using this prayer manual, Take Words With You, made by our own Pastor Tim, a a prayer resource, a compilation of God's promises, organized by category for you. In a way, he's done the hard work for us, so that when we're struggling with doubts, with fear, with meaninglessness, with whatever, we can look up in the table of contents um, that category and flip there and find a bunch of promises that God will use to help us in our times of doubt. You know, we, we have free copies at the back of the sanctuary for all of you to take home with you. Um, you may think, wow, that was just really well planned. I hope you're thinking that. That's not true. That was just coincidence, actually. Um, uh, we just received a fresh shipment of Take Words With You's, and I was gonna preach the sermon, and, and Tim texted me this morning. He's like, can we, can we give away free copies of the book? And I said, no, that's a wonderful idea. So in God's providence, we have these available for you to take, to use, and to strengthen your faith as you hold fast to God's promises. My second suggestion is that when, when you're reading your Bible, when you're going through your daily devotions and you're reading through the Psalms or through Genesis or whatever, I encourage you to take notes of the time when God is making a promise. Okay, don't just read passively. Say, oh, I'm familiar with this. I've read this before. Say, okay, I'm gonna study this with new eyes. I'm gonna keep my eyes out for the promises of God. And when there are promises, personalize them through prayer. Take them to God and say, God, you've promised to give me this, to care for me, to to be this to me, and um, help me to to believe that. Or I do believe that, I thank you for that. There are times where you need to to contextualize. You know, sometimes uh, the promises that God makes to Abraham, for example, to give him the land of Canaan, he's not giving us that same promise to give us the land uh, in the Middle East, Um, but he is making similar promises to us that are interpreted through a gospel lens, that that we have a land that he has secured for us through Christ. 
And he has promised to give us that land and to, and to keep us safe to inherit that land when the day comes, when we stand in his presence. Take note of the promises of God and make them personal for you through prayer. Third and finally, I encourage you to find a way to make God's promises more prominent in your life. This may mean memorizing them when you're reading in your devotions and you come across a promise that is giving you particular comfort, memorize that. Or if you struggle with that, if you're not Joel Wong, you know, who memorizes chapters of the Bible on Sunday morning and presents them without flaw later on in the service, you know, if you're not that, write them down on a cue card, put them in your pocket or hang them around your house and remind yourself of the promises of God. Make them um, more prominent in your life in whatever way you can. Whatever strategy you use, whatever tools you employ, I just want to encourage us to be armed with God's promises, to live by them, to believe them, to pray them, to trust them, to walk by faith in them, so that we may, with courageous hearts, follow wherever God calls us. Not because we are a faithful people, but because we worship a faithful God who always keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a faithful God and a loving God. We thank you that we can trust you. We confess that we often don't. So help us, Father, to look to your promises with faith, knowing that they are all secured through Christ, his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, so that you will give us all things that you have promised without question. I, help, I pray that you would help, especially those who are, have been waiting a long time to see your promises fulfilled. Give them persevering grace to continue to wait upon you until your timing is right. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.